I'm Alex Marlowe, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News and author of the best-selling book, Breaking the News. And on today's show, we begin with a breakdown of what we know about the Trump Mar-a-Lago raid, which isn't a whole lot more than yesterday, but I am able to connect a few important dots, I believe. I also give you the hot takes rundown from our political and pundit class, and there's at least one prominent Republican who's not weighed in on either side of this one, and I let you know who that is. I don't think you'll be surprised, but I still think it's a big deal. Also in the opening, a radical Florida Democrat is trying to cancel my book, Breaking the News, as well as Mark Levin's American Marxism, I explain. Nancy Pelosi has said that China is one of the freest societies in the world. Was she actually talking about Taiwan? Uh, I don't really know, but we play the clip. I have some updates on Governor Abbott's immigration buses and the New York mayor's feckless response to it, as well as a woke update on the radicalism sweeping across the country. Uh, speaking of woke, our guest is Justin Danhoff, who is part of the anti-woke Strive Asset Management, which was founded by Vivek Ramaswamy, who I did a long-form podcast with a few months back that you should search out. A uh, really interesting guy. And they're launching a new product today, ticker symbol DRLL, Drill, on the New York Stock Exchange. Drill is the first answer I've seen to date to counterbalance ESG companies that are moving our country in an unsustainable direction when it comes to our energy production, our energy sector, and of course the pun is intended there. He explains this all in an interview, and this is something that we're fully behind in Breitbart. We're working with uh, Strive Asset Management on this initiative, and it's something that is uh, pretty exciting. This could be a real pioneering thing, and we get into it with Justin, who is on their launch team. All that to come on the show, let's get into it. yesterday was election night not a super interesting one in terms of results i think in those of you who were follow who follow the blow by blow the um spectator sport element of politics uh, it was hard not to get a little wrapped up in the ilhan omar race where she barely survived a strong primary challenge um where a guy named don samuels who i had not heard about since yesterday until yesterday uh and, you know, I spent a fair bit of time doing this stuff. Um, it had lost by just 3,000 votes, which is which is sad. I mean, Ilhan Omar is a great punching bag, uh, figuratively speaking. We're anti-violence here. Condemn all political violence, Breitbart News Daily. Uh, but she is also very representative of where the Democrat Party is heading, and I think that that's worthwhile. But that said, I do think she's beneath us as a country, even as bad as some of our representatives are. So uh, I think I would have liked to have seen her go down. She did not, unfortunately. She won by about 2%. Um, and the other one is Derek Van Orden. That was another race people were tracking very closely. It won the Republican nomination in Wisconsin's 3rd District. So that's a retired Navy SEAL, and it was backed by President Trump. And that was another race that was that was pretty interesting. Uh, to follow is the huge crop of former Navy SEALs in the race. And uh, the, he's another one who uh, is one and was attacked pretty mercilessly during the primaries, unfair attacks, uh, as is so often the case, trying to act like he's some sort of a Nazi. Obviously, he's not. 
And those are probably the two major ones. So the main story still continues to be the raid of President Trump. Um, yesterday's show was probably the most exciting radio show we've had in a while, which is not shocking. I mean, a, a, a uh, when there's so much bad news to report on a constant basis and you're in the, uh, the long, hot days of summer, sometimes the show's Though they're always good. They're always important. They aren't always as spicy hot as they were yesterday. So uh, those of you like catching up on demand on the SXM app or uh, catch up on past podcasts on uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Yesterday was probably a good one. Tons of great callers. You guys have been on fire. Um, But it seems like that's still the major story. And we're, we're not getting a ton of uh, we don't have a ton new inform a ton I don't have a ton of new information for you today. A couple things I will point out. Um, a lot of people are focusing on this magistrate judge, Bruce Reinhardt, who represented Jeffrey Epstein personnel and approved the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago. Uh, people are trying to figure out more about this guy. Reinhardt has been a Florida federal magistrate after working in private practice where he, uh, where he had allegedly, reportedly, represented Jeffrey Epstein's employees. And so I don't know, maybe not world's best guy. We'll see. But then again, everyone's entitled to their, uh, to, to their representation in this country. So maybe not so bad, who knows, but, um, he was the person who approved this. And this was a subject for quite a bit of debate online because people thought, wow, he was a point in 2018. Does that mean Trump appointed this guy? No, the president does not approve magistrate judges. So that is something that if those if you read that somewhere, uh, you read that incorrectly. Um, and I know I think it I think it was a New York Post that reported that he was a Trump appointee. I think based on the math, and that's not true. So, uh, but that said, uh, it would be good to know about this guy because approving a raid, a federal raid of the President of the United States, uh, I must say, is probably not a. You might be a little off. If that's the case. So. Very curious to see if more comes out about Magistrate Bruce Reinhardt. Uh, that was a big one. Um, another big one is that Congressman Scott Perry uh, wa- had his cell phone confiscated. And this was, I think, maybe the biggest kind of breaking story of the day where uh, we we learned that this perhaps this is connected because Perry, it makes you think that perhaps this is all about January the 6th because Perry is seen as a close ally of President Trump and has gotten wrapped up quite a bit in the January 6th um, fiasco. So again, there's no motive that was stated, but the he's a, a Philadelphia congressman and uh, he'd been targeted by our Philadelphia area, uh, targeted by the January 6th committee for months, so that leads you to believe maybe they're connected, but maybe they're entirely not connected because, again, everyone has been uh, speculating that this has to do with Trump withholding documents or withholding something or other from the National Archives, and so those might not be related at all. So uh, one uh, person theorized to me, they sent me an email thinking that uh, perhaps this does not have to do, one does not have to do the other. So uh, the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, by the way, is uh, another title Perry holds, and it is perhaps because the FBI is not supposed to do anything that could be perceived as political within 90 days of an election. 
Uh, I don't know why they're doing stuff political ever, but they're not supposed to meddle in elections within 90 days. It's sort of a standard thing the FBI has established. I don't know how well they uh, stick to that, but uh, apparently it's some sort of a standard. And uh, we're, I think, as of today, 90 days until the election. So I think that's the math. So they were trying to maybe get a couple of things in under the gun that perhaps could create complications for them. Uh, Perry said he's outraged and that the FBI, under the direction of Merrick Garland's DOJ, uh, it would is is doing this on a uh, because of legislative and political activities, personal and private discussions, and none of it has to do with the government. Was his response. Uh, this is a scoop over at Fox News, so I'll give them some credit over there for getting this one. So that's it. So that seems to make sense to me that the narrative, the drumbeat goes on, that this is a, uh, a a political thing. And those of you who like President Trump have almost all seen this as political. Uh, I'm certainly in that group. Uh, let's say 98% chance. I think, of course, there's a small chance that they... They got the goods on Trump, but the stakes are so unbelievably high here, as was the subject of yesterday's show. Either they've got something really bad, they've got some evidence that is just absolutely going to make Trump look absolutely horrible, like he's done something truly illegal and worthy of a level of harassment that is unparalleled in American history, uh, or this could backfire colossally politically because it just seems like people on the right have been so pushed towards Trump over the last, um, I guess, 36 hours as we're recording this, and that is, uh, that, that is about the most obvious point I could make. So uh, those are sort of the main things that came out, which is really not much. Joe Biden is playing dumb. He has suggested that the DOJ is apolitical and it's independent. So he backs the DOJ. And this is one we phrase this at Breitbart News as that he was either Sleepy Joe or Lion Biden. So the reason why is because either he's asleep at the switch and did not know that the FBI and the DOJ are targeting his most likely political rival in his um, most likely re-election bid. And he just wasn't aware of it. That something unprecedented and historic could happen under his watch, and he was not informed at all that this could happen. Which, I guess, theoretically, the DOJ is supposed to operate independently, but you would also think if you were going to break historic precedent like this, and perhaps if they don't find anything, cause extreme political peril for Joe Biden, uh, someone might give him the word on this that this could happen. So either he was asleep at the switch or he's lying to us. Um, Donald Trump weighed in on this with a truth bomb over at Truth Social, and he suggested he's in the camp that Biden's lying, that Biden knew about it, and just anticipate that that will be a talking point that Trump repeats for the next couple of years if he runs for president again. Um, You'll hear that just about every day. That's that's Trump's take. Um, And why wouldn't that be his take? It's because that is, as I said, either Biden is a total idiot or he's a liar in this case. So that is um, that is one of the big ones. Um, another big one, the FBI had searched through Melania's wardrobe during the Mar-a-Lago raid. So I had mentioned this on yesterday's show that uh, someone probably got to search through Melania's closet. We'd like to see who that is. And I want a full accounting of it, make sure everything's still there. We need a full inventory of what they got in Melania's closet. 
but this is a place where, according to the New York Post, that the FBI agent scoured Melania's wardrobe, spent several hours combing through Donald Trump's private office, breaking open a safe and rifling through drawers when they raided the first family's Mar-a-Lago home. So it all fits with what we reported on yesterday's show, but it's just still unbelievable to get confirmation that's what they were doing, got into Melania's closet. New York Times had a write-up saying a person familiar with the search, whatever that means, said agents began going through a storage unit where items like beach chairs and umbrellas are kept in the basement. They progressed to Trump's office, which was built for him on the second floor of the main house where they cracked a hotel-style safe. That was said by two people briefed in the search to contain nothing of consequence. So what are they getting? What do they think they got? So, and what could it be? They don't have much, then who knows where this is going to go from here. Um, really interesting thing that uh, Francis Martel and Gabriel Reyes, who writes for us at our national security uh, uh, vertical, our world vertical at Breitbart, pointed out that El Salvador's president, Nayib Bukele, who is not a great guy, but it's, it's kind of a compelling guy to cover in the news. He gets some interesting ideas. One of the first millennial leaders in the world. Uh, but he had a hot take, which is that what would the USA if I did that with regards to the raid? Basically, he's in El Salvador. And if he had sent the FBI on his political opponents, then then or his equivalent, then the international community would be outraged. They would be calling it a dictatorship. They would call this uh, anti-democratic behavior. And yet here in the United States, you've got half the media congratulating it. You've got people over on MSNBC, et cetera, acting like this is uh, not, um, a, a, not a negative thing at all. A guy named Neil Katyal, who the left regards as a genius, who is a attorney and presents himself as a centrist, even though he's never held a position that doesn't fit directly with the hard left in this country, was on MSNBC suggesting that the DOJ is returning to its historical position as law enforcement agency above politics. He's saying like it's a fact. That's what they're talking about over on MSNBC. Um, Hillary Clinton, who's been reduced to being an online troll, had, was, promoted, was promoting merchandise, saying that a hat that says, but her emails, with a picture of her from 30, 40 years ago or something, with a hat, I guess, um, photoshopped on her head. Literally just selling merch. She's selling merch. It's the, I, I, this is one of the first moments I thought maybe Hillary's not going to run. I'd always thought she was trying to run and was probably winning. This is the first time across my mind when I watched this. She's selling like hats? She's selling hats off of this. But it is a friendly reminder of how there is the Democrats are never held to this exact standard. There's been no raids. There have been no raids of uh, the Biden family, the Clinton family. Nothing similar. Of course not. Of course there wouldn't be. Why would there be anything similar to this for Democrats? Um, Mark Levin, colleague on the station, said the Trump raid was the worst attack on the republic in modern history. Um, noting that he's former chief staff to the United States Attorney General. And he said, the, the, noting that the, the nature of this being so close, the 90 days specifically to the election. And 
um, noting that probably it's pretty certain that Trump is going to run again and that uh, this is a attack on a political opponent. But saying that this is the worst attack ever is I, I cannot say I'm disappointed in that language from Levin. I have to say I was anticipating something along those lines. The worst attack in the Republican modern history, not just an attack on Trump, it's an attack on everybody who supports him, attack on anybody who dares to raise serious questions about Washington, D.C. and the establishment of both parties. Um, you know, uh, it's interesting. Levin and I are in an interesting company right now because this is, uh, I'm trying to confirm all the details of this. But there was a light cancellation of my book, Breaking the News, and Mark Levin's American Marxism that's taking place right now online. A lady named Rebecca Jones, who's, I think, running for Congress or has already ran and lost, and she's a radical left-winger in Florida who lies about stuff and gets in all sorts of trouble. Um, She was complaining about a civics teacher at her kid's middle school who had recommended reading of Mark Levin's American Marxism in my book, Breaking the News. And she put out on Facebook, holy hell, talk about propaganda in schools. One of the middle school teachers in my son's school has these two books with a little sticky note saying favorite books, a civics teacher, a civics teacher. So she's got a track record of being a liar, which I noted. So I don't know if this is true, but assuming it is true, then I guess I'm in good company. Me and Levin getting canceled together by a radical Democrat in Florida. Um, if any of you are aware of this story and you know of the school, I would love to contact them and get them some free signed books. I think that could be could be interesting. It's funny how these things now, or as a person who not only needs to write books, you need to sell books. They're very favorable um, for selling books. Definitely, I'm sure it moved a few copies of Breaking the News. So uh, cheers to Rebecca um, Jones. So, but... Uh, again, we, we would love to uh, send some free books to the school. If any of you are uh, aware of it, it's online at brightbird.com. Go and check it out. Um, Andrew Cuomo said that the DOJ must immediately explain the Mar-a-Lago raid or it will be viewed as a political tactic. An obvious point that everyone is thinking. Andrew Yang, former Democrat candidate for president, said FBI's action strengthens the case for millions who see the raid as unjust persecution. Um, th- this perhaps, if the Democrats struggle some more and if the election goes badly in the midterms we could see something that's atypical which is some fracturing the democrat base they're very good at sticking together Uh, this is just the nature of the left in general it served them very well over the past several decades in this country is that they don't tend to eat their own the way we do on the republican side how we're just constantly fighting amongst ourselves um on the left they don't usually do this but there does seem to be the Cuomo seem like uh, I think they're kind of mad with the Democrat establishment at the moment. Andrew Yang clearly is. He now is trying to start a new political party. Um, but this could potentially be a theme sort of like the never Trumpers are in the modern uh, Republican Party, where if you see some people who are stepping out of line with the uh, Democrat talking points passed down from on high then you could see a pretty compelling news cycle um, if that's if, if that's the case. Because if they're willing to speak up and say obvious stuff, because you're not allowed to say even obvious truths to the Democrat Party or else, you know, your CNN, MSNBC uh, appearances tend to dry up quite a bit. All right, some more hot takes to point out. Nancy Pelosi says no person is above the law. 
So, which was uh, pretty noteworthy because people were pointing out that uh, her son, Paul Pelosi Jr., uh, was apparently going with her on her overseas trip and he has business interests overseas and was not listed um, on, uh, he was not listed as someone who was supposed to be, uh, who was going on these trips. So she, he was snuck on her plane to Asia and he's got business dealings there and this was not listed on uh, any of the, uh, uh, anything that was publicly available. So she brings her kid who's got business deals and he's going around with her in the region and who knows what he's doing during that time. He's hanging out with mom. Uh, well, we'd like to look into that, but it's pretty noteworthy. She says no one's above the law, even though her, you know, her husband's getting, it's got legal issues, smuggling her son around, no doubt to cut business deals. We'd love to look into it. And of course, Hunter Biden's got a similar, similar arrangement. Uh, I noted in breaking the news, we broke it down that Hunter Biden wrote on Air Force Two and we looked at like a two year window dozens of times. Literally, he was, he was on dozens of times during the uh, Obama years when Joe Biden was going overseas to do our foreign policy with places like Ukraine and China that uh, we know during that time, Hunter Biden was using uh, Air Force Two to jet set around. Mitch McConnell did not say anything about the FBI raid of Mar-a-Lago. I think maybe the only prominent Republican not to do so. Just about everyone chipped in. Part of the nature of things now, which is sort of annoying about social media, I have to admit, and one of the reasons why I'm not on it on a consistent basis is because once you start weighing in on stuff, then you're, com- you're forced to weigh in on everything. But that is the nature of the world. And uh, Mitch McConnell has remained silent completely on this. And this really made you guys incensed over at Brightport.com, looking at the comments, looking at the share rate and some of these. You guys did not dig this stuff. And uh, I, I, it's noteworthy, I think, in that McConnell is conceivably going to become the leader of the Republicans in the Senate again in uh, five months from now. And that to me, it, why? We just deserve so much better than that. Strikes me so unnecessary that we would go back to Mitch McConnell just to step backwards. And it'd be a failure of the people who are in the Senate to do this. There's just He just is, is out of step with the base. He is out of step with all of the energy in the Republican Party, aside from the donor class, which I think is increasingly split. The donors do seem to like people these days that are not necessarily McConnell people. So we just have to move on. We've got to move on from Mitch McConnell. It's just a, it'll be a colossal failure if he becomes a Republican leader yet again. And the only reason he's got a chance is because he did well in the judges. Um, but the aside from that, it's just, what, what, what has he got? And I know that he doesn't like President Trump, but it's the, it's a who cares? It's not about that. It's a historical moment. Uh, Mike Pence weighed in. He shares deep concern. Rand Paul said, this is outrageous and unjust, but predictable. Pretty much exactly my take. Hey, felon, Michael, Co- Michael Cohen liked it. He said we should all rejoice. Chris Christie said it was a great idea. I mean, who's looking for Chris Christie's take anymore? I don't get it. Uh, Hillary Clinton took White House property and faced no consequences. Ethan Letkeman noted for us at Breitbart News. You have to remind ourselves this stuff because remember, the worst, the worst crime in the world is in these, this day and age 
is to be Donald Trump. That is the worst crime you can have, as we discussed on yesterday's broadcast. So do you guys think the first question for today, do you think that Biden is, is stupid or lying? Do you think that he has no idea what's going on in his administration? Totally plausible. Or do you think he did know and was lying about it? I'm genuinely curious what your thoughts are. In addendum to that, what do you think is worse? Do you think it's worse if this is going on in Joe Biden's administration? He's not aware of it. Or do you think it's worse that he, uh, the, the, or, or, or do you think it's worse that he directed this? Because I guess it's worse if he knew about it. But I think it's very embarrassing for him if he had no idea this was going on. So that, that's the first thought for today. We'll make that question number one. All right, a couple other items that I will bring up before we flip it over the phones and hear from um, uh, some of you guys. Uh, I will note that Trump had a major four-minute video that he put out. Yeah, I brought this up briefly. It was on the front page of Breitbart.com if you want to check it out. Uh, January the 6th, 89% say the hearings have not changed their minds on stuff. And I, I don't know, what does that mean, 89%? I mean, how many people... Could that have possibly been effective with those last 11%? That's, I guess, a question that's worth thinking about because remember, the margins of some of these states are so small, but I think that this FBI raid could undo some of that. I really do. I think a lot of people, the January the 6th hearings, might have suggested to some people that, uh, you know, we're kind of burned out on Trump. This is so exhausting. We're going to be doing this stuff where everything's about Trump. We're only allowed to talk about Trump in this country. We can't talk about anything else. And some people are going to be annoyed with that and they're going to want to move on. But I will say that the, I think this FBI raid might have undone any good that could have possibly uh, uh, happened for the, for the anti-Trump constituency in Washington. So, and if you're in that group, and I think a couple of you called in yesterday and said you are, I'm curious if um, you want to chime in on the show. You should feel free to do so. So Eric Adams has a genius idea to react to Governor Abbott dropping off buses of illegal aliens in his city. Well, he's contemplating busing New Yorkers to Texas. How's that going to go? So he's going to, I guess, uh, I don't think, what does he mean by this? He's contemplating taking a busload of New Yorkers to Texas to campaign against Abbott. I think it just draws more attention to the brilliance of what Abbott's doing. Is it, There's no retort to it. As I've said, this is one of those brilliant moves I've ever witnessed in a political life, period. Abbott taking the illegal aliens and busing them to New York and D.C. and make them deal with it. Because all these Democrats love illegal aliens when they come into Texas, when they come into red states and become someone else's problems. But they don't like illegal aliens so much when they're in their cities and they have to deal with them. So uh, un until they figure out a way to deal with that, it's not going to be putting New Yorkers on buses to run campaigns. That's going to backfire. That's carpetbagging. And people tend to reject that stuff. People tend to not like it if you try to bring your New York values over to um, other parts of the country. Same thing with when Hollywood does it, with Hollywood carpet bags all the time. So that's that that is noteworthy. All right, uh, Nancy Pelosi 
has said that China is one of the strong democracies and one of the freest societies in the world. So she did an interview with the Today Show, and I think that a uh, we have a cut of this. Let's play cut one, please, Mr. Zach. We didn't go there to change our policy. We still support the one China policy. We go there to acknowledge the status quo is what our policy is. There was nothing disruptive about that. It was only about saying China is one of the freest societies in the world. Don't but, take it from me. That's from Freedom House. Let's it's talk a, strong a little bit. democracy, yeah. courageous people, and, and it, it's just, I don't know why it is, uh, except there's some commercial interest who would like to diminish uh, the relationship. But we're, we're very, we, I, I, well, tomorrow we'll have a press conference. You'll hear from my other members about the pride we took in going there, the reception we received, the fact that the Chinese are going to do what they're going to do. So one of the freest societies in the world, she believes in the one China policy, what are these commercial interests who would like to diminish the relationship? Is that is that is that like us? Is that like people on the right and conservative media? They have literal concentration camps. They have organ harvesting. They are run by a handful of people in the Politburo, and that Politburo is basically run by a dictator named Xi Jinping. Uh, you can't have any businesses, even the big the the biggest CEOs of the biggest businesses, get interned if they step out of line. Ask Jack Ma, Alibaba CEO. So this is just all lying, and she's lying because of something. There's something in it for her that she's doing this. But it's noteworthy in that it just reminds you of how her visit to Taiwan was totally self-serving. And if she's still saying that she buys in the one China policy, then she's not really being a revolutionary figure. She's not even doing a lot to uphold her legacy. Uh, I, you have to think that someone got to her that this is going to cause problems for her portfolio, which is what she's most concerned about. She's the greatest insider trader of all time. There's no close second. There's no person who has benefited more from knowing what's going on in Washington to uh, increase their wealth than Nancy Pelosi. She's probably made hundreds of millions of dollars doing this. And has gotten away with all of it. And she's got business ties to China and she's gotten softer on China the more she's made money in China. Peter Schweitzer nailed this in his book, Red Handed. So why did she go there if she's buying the one China policy and she's gonna announce that China's free? What was the point? There was no point. Other than to get some attention for herself. Very odd. Uh, and if you have any deeper thoughts on that, by all means, uh, feel free to chip them in here. Um, let me... Let's, I want to, I want to play a clip of Corrine Jean-Pierre who was asked about the 87,000 new IRS agents. Let's play cut six. Who around here decided that Americans were crying out for more interaction with the IRS? I, I don't understand your question. You have to say more. <laughs> Doesn't understand. Why? What are you talking about? I mean, it's a, I don't know why. I mean, just no one's had that thought. That was Peter Ducey. Uh, he's the first one to think about that 87,000 new IRS agents. Um, the Babylon Bee had a great headline, which you might have missed because they're not on Twitter because they're still off Twitter five months later um, because Twitter is not the, not a great place. But if they had a great headline that suggested that they were now going to have an IRS agent in every home. That is the plan. It's satire, but we're getting there, aren't we? 
that a, a America getting harassed by the IRS is going to be a think might not might not work as a political issue for the Democrats. Just saying. All right. Do we have our theme music? No, we do not. We have to work on this. We're not working this production value, but it is time for a woke update. Los Angeles School District has shared videos from a trans activist who posts explicit pictures. The person who dresses as a woman has hair like a woman, but also wears a goatee. Um, they have, they are doing an initiative called Human Relations, Diversity, and Equity, and this is a they have a program called Smarter in Seconds about pronouns. And this, this is all about using the they, them pronoun. And they are including posts by Addison Rose Vincent, a trans activist who runs an organization called Break the Binary. Um, and this is some really over the top stuff. A lot of really unattractive people, very overweight, unhealthy trans people. Um, Vincent is identifies a fat trans icon and dances and does VIP dances. And this is being promoted by public schools in Los Angeles and ever called break the binary. I was a product of LA public schools, barely survived it. And uh, then I eventually had to get out, I guess in the eighth grade. It's a shame because you know, a lot of people, there are you just paying hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes in some of the school districts there and they cannot get a decent school with any of that. So this is a financial windfall for the trans movement that the LAUSD is backing them with this initiative. So we keep an eye on it. I'm sure this was applauded by a lot of the uh, crazy parents who are out there even the ones who are getting rolled on taxes. Uh, a four-year-old has announced, I am a boy in a transgender reveal at a parade. This is a report from the New York Post. Sparked a heated online debate. Yeah, no kidding. This is at the Vancouver Pride Parade in Canada. Charlie Danger Lloyd of Canada was assigned female at birth, but from a young age expressed that he was a boy, his mom has said. There's viral photos that I don't think we posted, but they've captured of young Charlie. There's grandmother by his side. Uh, I have a four-year-old. The idea that you would do a gender reveal at four years old um, for someone that they are trans as a four-year-old is, of course, child abuse. And I'm not familiar with Canadian law, but uh, I think that this individual should be taken from his parents. And uh, hopefully given somewhere or grandparents, whoever's in charge be nice try to give them a, a decent chance at a, at a life but four-year-olds have phases that last 15 minutes to, to suggest that you should start changing your gender perhaps start undergoing hormone replacement chemical castration all that stuff because why because a we're in a woke moment 866-95-PATRIOT I've come up with an explanation for perhaps why Biden is so bubbled. Uh, there's a lady named Neera Tandem who is a pretty colorful character. We'll write this up at brightbird.com, but she is a far left radical and she was at the Center for American Progress, one of the most, uh, I would say, effective left wing organizations over the last 20 years or so, but truly radical. And they've moved the country, I think, in a bad direction. 
but a powerful group. And uh, she is a uh, she is one of the top people inside of the White House in terms of White House operations. I forget what her title is exactly, but she is apparently the one who controls what Biden reads, and she's narrowing the scope of what is being handed to Biden in terms of uh, papers and stuff, so that he knows what's going on in the world. And I've said this in the past that Biden knows less about what's going on in the part of America that I occupy and a lot of you occupy than the Communist Party in China. We routinely see the Communist Party in China responding to things we're covering at Breitbart via their propaganda outlets, and the White House just acts like we don't exist. The case in point, Karine Jean-Pierre not understanding that Americans were outraged by 87,000 new IRS agents that are designed to harass them and try to confiscate more of their money. So it's a, uh, she's annoying people in the West Wing because she has successfully asserted more control of the paper flow, Politico writes. If, if you, we're all a product of our inputs. And if some radical person who had spent her career in left-wing activism is controlling what you read, then you're not going to know what a lot of people in your country care about. Anyway, last uh, part of the Woke Update, longtime ESPN reporter Michelle Vopel is now going by M.A. Vopel. And you're free to call her or him now Vopel, M.V., Michael, or Mike. So trans person coming out, and uh, I guess we should throw some sort of a party, maybe have some colorful cupcakes with pink and blue and white, maybe some purple in there. Should all be very, very happy about this moment, I guess. So exciting. Again, Justin Danhoff is here. He's someone who we've had in the show in a number of contexts, and he's usually got something that he's working on where he's ahead of the curve, and this is no exception. We're talking about this new ticker symbol drill from Strive Asset Management. It is a new product, a answer to woke capitalism, and you're going to want to hear what you can do to get involved and perhaps use your money not just to enhance your wealth and your portfolio, but maybe do some good in terms of America's energy production and financial fighting back against uh, this sort of woke corporate class that has taken over so much of our culture. Let's hear it. Justin, great to have you on the broadcast. Hey, Alex, it's always nice to talk with you, especially in this new context. Yeah, this is super exciting. Uh, This is doing exactly what I've personally been calling for and what we've been calling for at Breitbart for years, really, which is not just whining about the culture, but becoming the culture. And when a lot of the culture is coming from uh, these funds, from these giant corporations that are only funding woke stuff, uh, you guys are finally stepping up and trying to be a part of the solution here. So let's just start really big picture. Tell us about Strive, how it came to be, and what you guys have been doing until this point with the new launch? Yeah, so Strive Asset Manager, we're a, we're, we're a new asset manager that um, has just this ambitious idea of taking on the behemoth big three, that is BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, that really act as an ideological cartel these days. Um, you can almost think of them as a, as a monarchy of sorts, you know, 250 years after we dusted off the British, we're, we're, we're fighting a new monarchy again. Because these three largest asset managers, they control 
$22 trillion in assets under management. If you think about that, Alex, that's greater than the GDP of the United States of America. And what do they do with that money? Well, they use their shareholder vote and their advocacy, that is their engagement with business, to affect culture in ways that most Americans disagree with. So on this whole swath of issues that, you know, some people call woke, some people think of it as socially responsible. Really, these days, it goes under ESG, though. That's environment, social, and corporate governance. Again, they use that $22 trillion in assets because they are upstream from American businesses to tell American businesses how to act. And so in a very large sense, what your audience sees every day with actions by, you know, Bank of America debanking gun clients or Nike pulling a Betsy Ross tribute shoe or, you know, Chevron and Exxon, for example, canceling energy projects here in the United States and abroad. A lot of the times you can actually point upstream and say the largest shareholders of those companies are actually pressuring them to take these actions that are, again, go against the will of not only just everyday citizens here in the United States of America, but very often the folks who have their hard-earned money through a few degrees of separation with BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard. And so at Strive Asset Management, we're launching our first product, the New York Stock Exchange, and we're going to use our voice and our vote to engage with corporate America to say, hey, why don't you focus on making excellent products and services for your customers and let culture warriors fight the culture. Let politicians battle in the political arena where they're accountable to everyday citizens for that type of vote. And we are going to use our voice and our vote as an asset manager differently than the current ideological cartel. Okay, so I, I have a lot of questions on this broader topic, which I'm interested in. I think the audience is as well, and they've given it a lot of thought. But I do want to talk about the new product. So let's tell tell us what's launching today, and then I want to get into some of the mechanics of it and how people can get involved. Yeah, so our first product is an exchange-traded fund, an ETF, um, and the ticker symbol is DRILL. That is D-R-L-L. And now it won't surprise you to know, Alex, that this is an energy product. And so we think that under the guise of ESG, there has been no sector that has been harmed more by this push for stakeholder capitalism in ESG than the U.S. energy sector. There is certainly a lot of regulatory and political blame to go around when it comes to what's going on. But when you look at the fact that last year, three climate change dissidents were voted onto ExxonMobil's board of directors. When you look at the Chevron annual shareholder meeting that took place in 2021, and more than 60% of the shareholders voted for Chevron to decrease its scope three emissions, which without getting technical, is every single thing Chevron does and every single upstream and downstream partner that Chevron engages in. And so when we basically, and these are supported by the big three, you know, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, these types of resolutions, these votes for dissident board members. This is a truly a shackle on the American energy industry that I think a lot of everyday Americans overlook that aspect of why they're paying so much at the pump. And so we are going to use drill to educate everyday Americans as to part of the problem is this upstream shackling that is going on by the largest asset managers in the United States 
to the companies that they're invested in, you know, Chevron, Conoco, Valero, the big energy companies. That's what we're interested in exploring with the American public, really. So how do you get something on the stock exchange? How do you create something like this? It seems that it's something that I don't personally know about. I could give you a compliance lecture, Alex, that would bore your audience to death and last all day. Oh, it sounds fascinating. Let me take out my notepad. Well, uh, the short version is, uh, of course, the financial industry is, is heavily regulated. And so there's a lot of compliance hoops that you have to you know, jump through um, in product creation, development. The Securities and Exchange Commission is heavily involved. FINRA is, is heavily involved. So I, I won't go through the slog of the compliance review process. And I won't complain about it here on the air today, um, but we've, you know, we've, we've jumped through all the hoops required. Uh, it sounds hard. That's my point. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like yeah. it's a big challenge. So you guys are really all in on this, which I admire. And it seems like something that you can perhaps start trying to influence these companies in a way that is contra to what the ESG crowd is doing. Um, but let's take a step back and talk a little about ESG. Uh, how big of a role is ESG playing in the underfunding of the U.S. energy sector right now, which is clearly, as we do talk on the show uh, a lot, quite quite underfunded at this time. I think it has a lot to do with it, right? And so, of course, if you elect to Exxon's board climate change dissidents that tell them to keep, you know, oil and natural gas in the ground, um, they're going to abandon certain projects in order to do so. The hypocritical part of this push by BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, and others is someone's going to pick up that project. It's just not an American company. And so when you look at, for example, Chevron abandoning projects and Exxon abandoning projects and others, well, BlackRock is one of the largest investors in a company that is poised to pick up any project that an American energy company might abandon. And that company just happens to be PetroChina, where BlackRock is one of the largest outside, of course, the, you know, the, the Chinese, you know, Communist Party and the government, they own the largest percentages, of course, of PetroChina. But as far as outside investors go, they, BlackRock is one of the one of the largest. And so, you know, they're, they're taking from the left hand and giving to the right. Look, let's take a picture back from 2013. The largest company in the world was ExxonMobil, right? And so that yes. wasn't that long ago that an American energy company was the largest company. And, and we believe that there is a path forward that if all of these shackles can be taken off of the American energy sector, I don't know if it'll be ExxonMobil, I don't know what company it might be, but we do think that there's a path in, in a few short years that an American energy company, based on the fact that we are coming out of a worldwide pandemic, we've got an energy crisis right now. Uh, the U.S. ability to produce is there. We just need the desire. So uh, tell me about the billions of dollars that have that were lost in the shale boom and bust. Uh, are we worried about this happening again, perhaps in this country with the energy sector? Yeah, I, I think that there's been somewhat of an overcorrection to that, um, that there, there's certainly skittishness around that and that there was, you know, an overinvestment in, you know, certain development areas that was then curtailed. And so what you've seen in recent years is large American energy companies increasing dividends, doing share buybacks. And that was understandable at a time. We just think in the next 12 to 24 months, 
there is a window where the companies that lean into increased development right now will be the ones who are poised to then capture, again, this worldwide surge in demand for energy. Because, yes, there, there may be a transition in the future to a higher yield of green energy products being you know, in demand and their efficacy being higher. But that's not happening in the next 12 to 24 months, Alex. I'll tell you that much. So the energy stocks right now are actually up 52% this year as we're having this conversation, which is pretty high relative to the rest of the stock market, which has not done, done great. Are we a little concerned it's perhaps too late to get in on this? Oh, no, not at all. Um, if you look, you know, the P.E. ratios of, let's just say, you know, tech versus energy, tech is still far outpacing energy, you know, when, when it comes to you know, P.E. ratios. And again, we think a lot of tech really benefited the stay at home play, right? As a lot of people called it uh, from, you know, the remote pandemic workplace. I mean, how many people had even heard of Zoom, let alone the stock prices of Zoom before the pandemic, right? And, And so I think that there's a lot more room to run when you look at the fundamentals of the energy sector, because of course, Again, the demand is coming because certain areas, now not every area, there's still plenty of folks that want to keep us locked down, but the American people have said enough of the lockdowns. That's that's very clear to us. I, I want to ask about the EIA, which said last week that gasoline demand had fallen to below summer of 2020 levels, which is unbelievable. Do you think this data is is plausible at all? A lot of people are questioning it. It's always interesting to look at data depending on what the outcome you want to see versus you know the reality and whether it's tailing data or forward-looking data so i wouldn't put too much stock into that yeah i I don't either but it's still interesting because if you think about the prices right now with the gas price inflation which is so high and part of it is because there's been this lack of willingness to drill and uh, is how much of that do you put on biden how much of that do you put on the green movement and some of these companies that are actually just going along with it and they're afraid that if they don't abide by the esg uh the, you know wiki component being in environmentalism that they're they're potentially harming their own businesses because of of the woke mob yeah i think that there's a very real fear and it's tangible and why do i say that because you know, at Strive, we want to unshackle the energy sector. And part of that are the ESG mandates uh, that have come from the large asset managers that are currently their largest shareholders. But part of it is also a sideways sort of attack, if you want to think about it, because there are also a lot of shareholder proposals put forward to financing companies. So, you know, like J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman, Bank of America, that are telling them that they must align their financing with things like the goals of the Paris Climate Accord. And in many instances, those corporations are agreeing to that. Um, Berkshire Hathaway this year, thankfully, they they voted it down. But, you know, there was a shareholder resolution put forward to Berkshire to say, you must align your insurance underwriting with goals of the Paris Climate Accord. Now, guess where that resolution actually passed? Was at the Travelers Insurance Company annual shareholder meeting this past year. So think about that. If insurance company if the energy sector can't get financing and they can't get insurance and their largest shareholders are shackling them there's a lot of real fear in that industry 
And we're here to be a different voice to say, be not afraid. Be not afraid. This monolithic boom that you've heard for so long, um, we've got another voice and we've got another vision for, for your sector. So, again, the company is Drive Asset Management and their first product drill on the New York Stock Exchange as of today, which is pretty amazing. And this is basically trying to end passive management of money by right of center individuals, people who think that it is good to have a robust energy sector and it shouldn't be hamstrung by the government or woke corporations and trying to be of smart with your money and being influential. I think it's a great welcome addition to uh, the public discussion. Have you guys got any blowback with this plan yet? Because it is this is a pioneering thing you're doing, which is never easy to do. Oh, yeah, there's been a few hit pieces written already. And, you know, I would I would put this in a different context, though. Um, again, we think that what's happening right now is, you know, if you think about the average pension holder who has, you know, a retired nurse, teacher, firefighter who has their money, for example, invested in a state pension fund that then goes to invest in BlackRock State Street or Vanguard. Well, I don't think that this is necessarily a right-wing issue. I like to put it this way a lot, yeah. Alex. Retirement's an American ideal. And a liberal middle school teacher that teaches everything from CRT to DEI to little kids in San Francisco, they want to retire with dignity in just the same way that a conservative MAGA uh, you know, firefighter from the hills of you know, West Texas wants right. to retire. And so I, I think that once you actually pull down on the data, Americans, left, right, and center, they do believe that retirement with dignity is an American ideal. And when they see their money being weaponized in ways that isn't looking out for their financial interests, but is rather being politicized, I, I, I think this, th- this is really just, you know, that's why we want to restore the voice of everyday citizens in corporate boardrooms. Now, to be fair, there are right-wing funds out there. There is a MAGA fund. Uh, the second vote ETFs screen out, you know, bad liberal actors. And there are, you know, obviously many pro ESG funds. And we think there's a space in the market for all of that. If you're a true believer in ESG and you think your money's going to save the world with yeah. your social causes, environmental causes, you know, God bless. If you want to screen out companies because you're a Christian and they go against your values or a conservative and they go against your values, those those places also exist in the marketplace. We're just forging a new path to try and depoliticize corporate America by using a different voice and vote than the current ideological cartel. So, but here's why I think this is so important and why this excites me. And I've talked to Vivek about this uh, offline for really about the la- over the course of last year uh, is that this is, I think the perhaps the best thing you can do for working class and poor people around the world is to drive down the price of energy. I mean, you can't really do something that serves the greater good more than that. And in this Orwellian moment we're in, we've kind of been convinced by people that the best thing you can do is uh, join this new sustainable vision, which who knows if it'll even work because, uh, ahem, look at how we treat China. We're letting, we're letting them build coal fire power plants right now, and they're going to continue to do so uh, for the next you know a, a decade, perhaps, maybe longer. So uh, clearly there's something going on uh, on the left side of the aisle where they're uh, th- their vision on things is, I think, completely removed from reality. 
But the reality is, is that driving down energy prices is a good thing for poor people. And I think ultimately this can do a lot of good for poor people if this succeeds. And it's only going to succeed if people like people in this audience get behind it. So uh, tell us again how to do this, uh, Justin. If we want to be a part of it, uh, what do we do? So, you know, depending on which platform, you know, you, you have for your brokerage accounts, for example, um, the ticker symbol is drill, D-R-L-L. It's listed on the New York Stock Exchange. And, you know, please spread the word where, again, if you want to unshackle the American energy sector, the way to do that is through drill, D-R-L-L. One thing that we haven't touched on directly, because again, a drill is the symbol, but it also the, the fracking element is so big. And I talked to so many experts over the course of you know the last few years about how there's so much of American land that can be fracked effectively and that would continue to create more energy independence of this precarious time. Uh, and we don't do it for whatever reason. And I think a lot of it's regulatory. The permits are hard to get. But if there was more of a cultural imperative, I think it would happen. But it seems like we've got that's all on the back burner now. And we need to revitalize that debate. Absolutely. I, and look, oftentimes you'll hear this from, you know, the political class. But I actually do mean it. There is room for an all of the above strategy. Yes, I do think, you know, investments in clean coal, investments in carbon capture, investments in way better storage of, you know, things like solar and wind are absolutely important. But I do think, you know, there's, you know, when we talk about really ways that America can produce the cleanest energy, which, by the way, we do. So if you're for clean energy, you should be for more American energy. Right. America, you know. Canada and Norway, we produce the cleanest energy, but here in the States, we lock up so much of our energy. And again, other nations are going to take on projects and use less clean energy. So that's just what, you know, the elite class in the United States gets wrong all of the time because emissions are worldwide, right? If you want emissions worldwide to get cleaner, more of them should be done here. And fracking is a part of that discussion. Yeah, and yet it is such a powerful lobby throughout the country, and it is in these corporate boardrooms that are suggesting we cannot try to develop American energy resources, uh, but we are developing them in a way. We're encouraging the development of them in other countries by people who produce them less efficiently and less cleanly than we do, and I just think that's a major problem. Uh, that it's a good thing someone's trying to finally starting to do something about it. So the company Strive Asset Management, Drill, D-R-L-L, is the ticker symbol New York, on the New York Stock Exchange. Justin, can we get to a moment where we're post ESG? Is this the beginning of it? Is this the beginning of the fight back? Or is the fight back already underway? This is the beginning of the beginning. But, you know, I, I think that there's enough voices out there. You know, I like to say I was fighting woke capitalism for years before Ross Duhout invented the term. And it was a lonely, lonely voice for a long time. But there are great leaders. Um, Vivek has taken a true um, leadership position in this space. But there's lots of voices that are now willing to speak up against this elite ruling class that are trying to dictate, you know, decision-making through this stakeholder capitalism paradigm. And, you know, I'm glad that you're helping us amplify this discussion. You're a great ally, and I know your audience is greatly aligned on, on working on these issues as well. 
Yeah, absolutely they are. And uh, this is a big opportunity because this is not whining. This is being proactive and uh, really fighting the bad guys in a way that overall should be apolitical, shouldn't it? I mean, I, I guess we'll, we'll we'll make that the last thing I ask you about. There's no reason why this should this should theoretically. I know we all think we all have the best common sense in the world, but this seems kind of common sense to me at this point in time that we're moving in this direction. Yeah, I think so. I mean, as every single thing gets politicized um, in America, you know, if you don't believe me, go to your next school board meeting and bring earplugs. Yes. Right. We just think that American commerce should be a place where, you know, red, blue, black, white, gay, straight, you should be able to engage in commerce without the fighting that is just ingrained in every other fabric these days of American society. Because look, we do have, you know, red jeans and blue jeans. We have, you know, red shaving blades and blue shaving blades, red jeans and blue jeans, red coffee, blue coffee, all of it, right? If we get to red Major League Baseball and blue Major League Baseball, I think the American experiment's probably over at that point. And so we want to depoliticize corporate America to create that apolitical space where we can all engage in commerce and stop yelling at each other so much. We think that would be wonderful. Yeah, that would certainly be nice. And I, I'm hopeful this is a step in the right direction. And maybe you all can make some money in the process, which would be pretty cool as well. Uh, Justin Danhoff, who is part of the launch team for Strive Asset Management and Drill. He's the head of corporate governance and chief compliance officer and generally has his hand in a, a lot of good stuff, uh, typically when he's when he comes around Breitbart land and he's written for us in the past as well. So thanks, Justin. And uh, we'll catch up. Thank you so much, Alex. Appreciate it. That's today's show. Thanks to producer Zach and Greg Eben. Robert Marlowe helps me pick topics. All of you pick up breaking the news. All of you who share Breitbart's content all over the social web and keep up with everything that we do on the show and at Breitbart.com. I can't thank you enough. Talk to you tomorrow.